Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to Sex, Love and Addiction. I think this is a kind of special show for me to do because um, this is a show about professionals. This is a show about people who are really at the highest levels of our culture, working to working in medicine, working in law, working in psychotherapy, working in research, people who are highly trained, highly educated. And yet, guess what? Even those of us with the most education, with the most experience, with incredible edu- you know, um, opportunities, we can still end up with addictions and we can still end up struggling with intimacy and sex and drugs and all those things. As you well know, um, our intellect and our emotions can run on two different tracks and it doesn't really matter how trained and educated you are. If you are emotionally vulnerable, you may struggle with addiction. And so I have invited Dr. Ryan Bailey with us to join us today. Ryan, thank you. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Rob. And I'm going to read a little bit about you if that's okay. Dr. Ryan Bailey is an executive coach whose focus is the development and resilience of high-performing professionals. Using coaching paradigms, he helps professionals close the gap between where they are and where they want to be. A large part of this work is helping clients redesign their major life events. As an emergency physician himself, ER that means folks, about two-thirds of his clients are doctors and physicians and healthcare executives, and the remainder are professionals in law, finance, and executive management. Welcome. Great. Thank you for having me. It seemed like um, you and I would be a good fit today because you are, uh, I am often getting in our treatment setting, people who are struggling with the dual issues of, I have gotten in trouble with my board. I've gotten in trouble with my bar. I've gotten in trouble with my university setting. And I, maybe I've gotten some help or I haven't, but I'm not knowing how to transition back into the life that I had, or if I even wanted or how to. And it seems like you found a place to really help people. And I guess I want to understand how you fit into the picture of somebody who's struggling like that. Absolutely. So, you know, I I think you really hit it on the head um, a few moments ago when you said that, you know, these professionals that we're talking about, and and I use the term high-performing professionals. And, you know, what I mean by that is these are people who tend to have very long educational trajectories, you know, graduate degrees uh, or professional degrees, 
who tend to work in very competitive, cutthroat environments, a lot of high stakes decision making, a lot of responsibility for others, um, and environments where there's very little tolerance for error or weakness. And, you know, as you said, these professionals get into the same trouble that we all get into, um, whether it's, you know, burnout, disruptive behavior, addiction. Eventually, what often happens is these people will come to the attention of their employer or their uh, licensing bodies, such as a medical board or a state bar association, and their you know, livelihood will be threatened. And they will often go through an intensive period of some type of treatment to address the issue, maybe inpatient or a residential program. But then they, at some point, will have to come back to their professional life, you know, their daily transactional life. And they have to make some very big decisions about how they want to move forward in that and is even coming back to that professional domain the right choice. And I want to mention, since Ryan is is doing such a good job, or, job of articulating the situation, that you have to understand, in case you don't, that this isn't someone who can say, "Well, I, you know, I'm just not going to be a doctor anymore. I'll go work in a you know in a grocery store." Because this is someone who spent, as Dr. Bailey was saying, so many years educating themselves and so much time, money that by the time they're 32 or 28, they're just starting their careers. And then they're 37, 38, 45, they're only 10 years into work and they have had a major issue happen and they're in trouble. Um, these aren't folks who really just want to say, okay, well, I'll just move on to a different career or find a different way of making my living. They want to, they've already devoted half their life to learning about this work and now they want to do this work. So they're in a different situation than most of us, I would think. Absolutely. And it's, it's both practical. Like you said, they've, you know, there are such sunk costs to pursuing these educational degrees. And you know, they will often come out with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. They will have significantly delayed gratification in other areas of their life in terms of you know, relationships with significant others, often have you know, put their health to the side to complete this training. And they are faced with the very real consequences of they, they just don't want to throw that all away. It's very hard to walk away from. But on top of that, it's also an issue of identity. You know, these people have spent over a decade, you know, becoming this person, you know, for, to fulfill this societal role that their job fulfills. And it's, it's not just walking away from the practical aspects, but it's if they decide to leave, it's really about giving up an identity that's defined them for years, if not decades. And it's incredibly difficult to do. So if there's any way that they can move forward and still do their profession, that tends to be what their preferred course. What are the kinds of situations where you see somebody who is a professional end up in trouble? And then if I might extend that, where, you know, what are you asked to do for them or what are the kind of more specific things that you, you are able to help them with? Sure. So, you know, with physicians right now, there's a huge epidemic of burnout and that epidemic is also reflected in law and a few other professions. You see it in sort of high level banking and finance like Wall Street. And burnout left unchecked tends to start resulting in, in pretty significant work challenges um, as well as life challenges. And impairment to functioning. <laughs> impairment to functioning. And you see people, you see this manifesting as addiction sometimes. You see this manifesting as disruptive behavior, uh, rage, issues with boundaries. Eventually, what happens is these people, their, their behaviors get them into trouble and often 
the path for that is they will ultimately get referred to some type of state licensing agency. So with, with physicians, it's the medical board. With lawyers, it's the state bar association. And ultimately, you know, they will determine what the issue is. They will often come up with a, a program with which the client has to be compliant in terms of seeking treatment for the specific issues. And where I tend to come in is on the tail end of that. So many of the physicians and other professionals I work with have often gone through intensive inpatient or residential programs. And now they're coming back to their life. Like they're coming back to their professional domain, family, and all the social relationships that, that were probably negatively impacted by what was going on. And yeah, the embarrassment, they are coming back and nobody, you know, everybody wants their doctor to be pretty stable. Anybody who finds out that their doctor hasn't been is going to feel uncomfortable. So they've got a lot of stuff to face. Right. I mean, there's, especially with physicians, there's tremendous shame and guilt for mm-hmm. being the helpy rather than the helper. You know, <laughs> right. physicians are not patients as far as physicians are concerned. Yes. Have I mentioned that they are my most difficult patients in treatment is doctors, followed by attorneys, by the way, that because they really know how to argue. Yep. <laughs> but sorry about that. I interrupted. No, it's absolutely true. Um, you know, one of the, the biggest things that happens with physicians is they start to feel burdensome to the people around them, you know, once they're on the receiving side of needing help. And it's tremendously difficult for them to navigate and when they come back to their daily lives, they're dealing with all of these issues, you know, having to reintegrate with their colleagues, their family, their patients with a lot of guilt and shame nestled in there. And on top of that, they're often going back to very toxic environments um, with very high levels of chronic stress, which makes it much more difficult for them to remain compliant with, you know, with their goals for recovery or for moving forward. And I'm thinking um, that these folks don't have a lot of opportunities to make mistakes. Like if I've gone through treatment for three months and I'm a high level physician and I'm on, you know, I'm, I'm getting drug tested twice a week or whatever it is. If I have a slip, well, I already kind of know this because I work with these guys. It's, it's not like, oh, well, I just drank or used and I'll just get back on the wagon and everything's going to be fine. They're going to have immediate consequences for a single, very often a single mistake, if you will. Yes. And it's, it's absolutely zero tolerance. And this is something you see, um, and maybe for your listeners who may not know this. So there are, for physicians, for example, there every state has a physician health program. And these organizations were originally designed to help physicians deal with addiction, whether, you know, alcohol, drug use, other addictions. And when they come to the attention of one of these programs, they enter a zero tolerance contract. And so, like you said, a single drink, um, a single positive drug test, um, or in the case of burnout and disruptive behavior, which also comes up a lot, you know, a single negative interaction with a, with a colleague or a patient is it. I mean, that's it. And their organization at that point will generally terminate them. The medical board will often immediately suspend their license, if not it entirely. So it's it's incredibly unforgiving. I, I think also, if I want to add to this, that these docs often, you know, uh, we think of docs as being very wealthy, successful, et cetera. But as you said, some of the younger ones have huge medical bills or young families they're trying to support. And I, my experience is that there isn't a lot of leniency for what this costs. In other words, if you're a doc in trouble, you're just expected that if you want to save your license, you're going to pay for treatment. You're going to pay for whatever it takes. And it, it, it's interesting because it puts a sort of additional burden in a way that's not helpful to their healing. And yet it's just the way it is. 
Absolutely. And this is this is something that I, I worry about as an executive coach because I don't want to be part of the problem you just mentioned. When physicians get, you know, plugged into this process, like a with a physician health program, for example, they often have to undergo expensive assessment, which is at at their own cost, you know, sort of like a, a, a 96 or a 96 hour assessment where they, they may have to travel. So obviously they're not working during those days. They may have to often go out of state. The evaluations are expensive. And then of course, whatever the evaluation reveals, you know, is also very expensive, whether they have to go do, you know, a, a multi-day or, or a multi-week inpatient or residential program. Or a multi-month. Or a multi-month. And, and of course, they're not working. Um, and those programs, while very helpful, are very expensive. And then, you know, on the tail end of that, even, even working with a coach is, you know, can be an additional expense. Yes, all of it. And, uh, and they don't have a lot of options. So, and, and, you know, it's hard to feel empathy for someone who's been so successful and had so many opportunities. And, you know, it's sort of like looking at our, our star athletes or star uh, musicians or whatever, we kind of say, well, you know, I'm sorry they screwed up with drugs and alcohol, but boy, they had every opportunity. And so do these people. Yeah. And the culture of medicine is very unforgiving. I, I certainly think that that attitude- that, I'm sorry, that sounds like an oxymoron somehow. <laughs> Medical culture unforgiving, those words shouldn't go together somehow. I know they do in insurance, but I didn't think in within the profession that, and you're a doc, so can you say something about that? Absolutely. I mean, the, you know, medicine is, is very cutthroat from, from the moment you are a pre-med in college all the way through medical school, residency, fellowship. It's, it really is survival of the fittest. And there's very little tolerance for, you know, I can't hack it or, you know, I, I can't keep up or I need help. And so there really is a very strong culture about not reaching out, not asking for help, a lot of shame around that. That sounds like the sickest families I've ever worked with. <laughs> you know, don't talk about the problems, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, never show weakness. These are all of the things that make for very troubled families. Yeah, absolutely. And in medicine, you know, your colleagues are in a way your family. I mean, you spend, you know, the average physician works about 60 hours a week and that's after training. It's it's higher during training. You know, your colleagues are the people you primarily interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, to know that deep down inside that uh, <laughs> they tend to be very judgmental and and very uncompassionate for, you know, any weakness that's shown is is very hard. You, you really do feel quite alone. You know, people can't can't share these things with their colleagues, nor do they feel like they can really, you know, share these problems with their family. And there's a huge sense of isolation. How are you able to help concretely when you show up on the scene? Like, what can you do for folks? So, you know, I approach things as, even though I'm a physician, I am also trained as an executive coach and I... Wait, was that an apology, doctor? Are you apologizing? Well, no. I, I'm sorry I'm a doctor, but <laughs> well, I do, from that cutthroat, difficult world. Absolutely. Well, I do, I do want to be clear that, you know, when I work with physicians, I'm not working with them as a psychiatrist. That's not, that's not my background. You know, my background is as a physician, so that allows me to tap into the, the common experience that I have with my clients. Uh, but what I bring to the table is really coaching paradigms. And as a coach, what I tend to do with these clients is I really sit down with them and we step-by-step step help develop a vision for where they want to be a year or two from now. And we talk about their whole life, uh, you know, professional challenges, health, family, spirituality. You're being holistic. You're looking at, you're not just looking at, they've been looking at school and work for so long and you're kind of saying, well, why don't we look at all of you? 
right? And how can you manage all of this? I think you're opening a broader lens for them to to look at their healing through. Yeah, absolutely. Because each of these areas are they're tightly interconnected, right? If you if you have an area that's not going well, you know, maybe it's a, a relationship at home, you know, that's going to dramatically affect work performance and also your ability to stay in recovery and vice versa. And so I really do start with a holistic approach and I try to find out what is it that's really important to them at this point in their life? You know, who and what's important? What are their values? And we also spend a lot of time on strengths. And from those values and strengths, we really use that to build a vision for the types of changes they want to make or sustain over the next year or two. And then it's a matter of just using, you know, stepwise action planning um, as well as accountability to help them make little adjustments to their behavior to get them there. And accountability to you, accountability to their families, accountability, just being upfront and honest about everything is what they're being asked to do. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's one of the real benefits of, of coaching is that, you know, you know, you know, every week, every other week, you know, there's going to be someone who's going to be asking you how your intent to change went. You know, how did those behaviors that you wanted to implement um, and those actions you wanted to take, how did they work out? And if they didn't, what got in the way? Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. You know, we kind of do get planted in our patients' heads. I, I had a, a check-in in one of my groups the longest time that said, uh, for guys who were in there every week, and it said, have you told a lie this week? Well, I would have guys who would, you know, uh, someone would ask them something at work and they were about to make something up and they'd say, oh, shoot, I got to tell Rob that. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to tell him that. And so it was like they carried me in their head a little bit, which I'm thinking that they do with you. They carry some of these messages and some of this vision in their head as they go through. You're really helping them much like a therapist and only specific to this issue here and now and what they have to deal with in front of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I hear that too. I have I have clients tell me sometimes that when when they think to themselves, sometimes they <laughs> they hear my voice. Um, but you know, it it is about planting seeds. You know, it it's one thing and this has been borne out by tremendous research in neuroscience. You know, it's one thing to want to avoid something. It's another thing to have something you're moving towards. And so, you know, wanting to avoid losing your marriage, you know, wanting to avoid losing your medical license, you know, those can be obviously very motivating, but it's been shown time and time again that knowing what you want to move towards is actually much more likely to result in sustained change. And so when we talk in these sessions about, you know, what's your vision and what are you going to do if this happens or you know what behavior do you want to try to emphasize this week that plants the seed and then as they move through that week it it does pop in their head and it does sort of give them that that self-awareness or if you prefer you can call it mindfulness to you know kind of catch themselves in the moment and you know really ask themselves like is is this in alignment with what i'm trying to achieve 
So you really take the role almost of like a, um, a sponsor, if you will, in a 12-step program, but sponsoring them for life, sponsoring them for the broad issues of how to live their lives and how to find happiness. And I agree with you. You know, we say in sexual recovery that that recovery is, uh, is not about avoiding the porn or avoiding the affair or avoiding the prostitute or staying away from that strip club. Those are good things. We prefer you don't do that. But what it's really about is where do you find joy in life? Because my clients have been either not having a lot of happiness for a very long time or finding their only joy in intensity, in in high-level distractions like using like sexual behavior where it's a very short-term gain. You don't leave there feeling too great for very long after. A colleague of mine said to me, um, you know, a, a life well-lived in recovery should just be like one notch above boring. And I thought, oh, well, that's a normal life. You know, some highs, some lows, but our clients, they kind of want that intensity rush, you know, and then they want to run away from, you know, it's a lot of ups and downs. It sounds like you're working to smooth out that kind of pattern in their lives. Absolutely. And, you know, a, a lot of that is drawing their attention to, you know, what that, that intensity costs them, you know, especially the, those ups and those downs. It's very much about, you know, if you weren't spending all of your sort of cognitive and emotional time in a strip club, you know, what, what would you be doing, right? It's, it's, you got to get them out of that mindset of like, I don't want to do X, Y, or Z. And of course, we don't want them to do X, Y, or Z. But the real question is, what do you fill that space with? Mm-hmm. And this is true for everyone's recovery. And by the way, everyone, I would suggest that this is something that every spouse and every addict can be thinking about, which is, yes, you know, I know you don't want to use, I know you don't want to act out. I know you don't want to end up in that same place, but what do you want? What do you want for your relationship? What do you want for your children? What do you want to do to play? Because all those hours that were spent in acting out have to be filled up somehow, and some will be filled up in meetings and meditation and therapy, but that ain't having a life. (laughs) That's just the healing part, I think, right? Absolutely. And if you're, if you're not intentional about what you fill that time with, it, it will get filled and, and probably with things that you don't want to be there. Well, I think you're talking about, this is interesting and I appreciate the, the thought that, that for those of us who are very, very driven around work and have spent many years achieving, that we actually have to be, di- be disciplined about self-care. It's very easy for us, I think, to, at least I can relate to, oh, I'm, I'm not, I didn't get to the gym, but that's okay. I'll get there tomorrow. Or this was more important. Or this situation was more important than getting home for dinner. Or, or making that uh, you know baseball game. And slowly, those of us who are caregivers can give away parts of our lives and become resentful because now we're, everyone else is having a life and we're not. And those kinds of situations lead us right back to the kinds of addictions that we came to get help for in the first place. Absolutely. It's, it's so easy to give up those little moments to your professional life, you know, and, and this is true in medicine, it's true in law. And I hear it time and time again, you know, and people I work with on Wall Street is, you know, it's, it's all encompassing. There's, there's never not going to be more that you can do, right? There's never not going to be ways you can try to be more competitive, you know, do, do more with less time. And people get in this mode of, of sort of professionally just doing, doing, doing. And it's emotional numbing to some extent. And it's also just exhausting because you are sacrificing all those things you just mentioned in the other domains of your life that really replete you. You know, that, that's where the little joys come from. But I have surgeons, you know, they are, they are addicted to their pager going off at two in the morning and having to rush into the hospital and, you know, open someone's chest. And there is something very intoxicating about that. And, and you can fill every moment of your life with that as a, as a physician, but you really will be undermining yourself. 
emptier and emptier and emptier. Yes, I think we had a president of the United States who was a very busy guy, um, but his personal life, not so great, um, not so long ago, which sort of goes to that point, which I want to reemphasize that you can be really, really intellectually smart and really, really emotionally empty. And they don't look like they'd go together because our, our smart folks out there, they look like they have it together. That's part of being smart is looking like you have it together. You always kind of have to look like you have it together, but it doesn't always function for healing and, and life. I want to ask you something more specific to some of the work that I'm doing because I actually need your help a little bit. I wonder how the the organizations that monitor folks like doctors and lawyers and those kind of folks account for different kinds of drug problems. Because if I was working with an alcoholic or an opiate addict or even a cocaine addict, I would expect ultimately, I would expect complete sobriety. And I think I could expect that, demand that, look for that. And I would feel very confident that if the client had gotten the right treatment, the right care, they were probably going to be able to manage that sobriety with or without the support that you offer. But I also know there are drugs, and this is one that we're struggling with. We're a clinic that treats a lot of people with meth and coke addictions that's paired with sex. And what I know about meth, I mean, crystal meth in particular, is that um, it, it relapses relapse is part of the recovery process. And my clients are rarely, if ever, going to get going to stop at the end of leaving treatment, not using, and never use again. Their their trajectory is going to be they're going to use in six months, they're going to use in a year, they're going to use in a year and a half. It might be two or three years before they're really able to get clean. And yet, uh, these people who have professional positions; they can't be in the very typical and normative scenario for their healing, which is that they're going to have slips. Because with other drugs, with other situations, it's much easier to understand that they would stop. But because we don't have anything to mitigate the misery and pain of someone who's been abusing amphetamines and speed for uh, two years, they're really, really miserable for a really long time. And as a result, they will slip on and off. So I'm trying to work with organizations and keep these men and women licensed and what I hear is, well, they've had a slip that, you know, they, they went through treatment, they did all the stuff, they were being monitored, they knew what they were facing. And, and while I understand that for 90% of the drugs that people are struggling with, I don't understand it for meth. Because the trajectory of a meth client, and I've got these guys, you know, with homophobic histories who are gay guys who are self-hating and, you know, grew up in very religious environments. And now they find this drug and they're out there using and sexing and they feel incredibly powerful and together for the first time in their lives and, you know, all of that stuff that goes with this particular drug. So what I'm struggling with is how do we, how do I help the professional organizations differentiate the recovery process for people who are involved with different kinds of drugs and experiences? Because the trajectory for healing is going to be different for different situations, but it, it really, the expectations are the same for everybody. You're going to get it. You're not going to do it again. Yeah, no, I think that's an incredible, incredibly good point. And, and to be honest, very hard to answer. You know, I, a, a parallel and, you know, I realize this isn't substance abuse, but, you know, a parallel I see with that it happens a lot in burnout as well. So, which the World Health Organization just said we need a diagnosis for, right? Burnout. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And, and in, in Europe, it's, it's been, con you know, in Europe, there has been a diagnosis for it for a while, but in, in the United States, we haven't officially recognized it as a, as a diagnosable mental health issue. But, you know, with burnout too, you know, or disruptive behavior, you're trying to change years of highly reinforced behavior and slip ups are 
the rule, not the exception. Um, you know, it's with behavior change. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back, and you know, to expect someone to just stop doing whatever they're doing cold turkey, whether it's a certain substance, like you said, chemsex, or you know, disruptive behavior, throwing scalpels in the ER because you're so fry, your interpersonal skills are so terrible. It, it's a really unrealistic expectation, and I I struggle a lot, and I, I try to advocate for the physicians I work with. And really try to keep in touch with the organization that employs them to let them know, you know, how much progress is being made and how compliant the person's being because they are, they they probably are going to slip up, you know, but is one slip up in six months a failure? Well, you're trying to inform them that, hey, you know, so in a way you're trying to address this very black and white profession as you've described it and say, hey, there are a lot of grays here and let's give these people a lot of credit for filling in the grays where they can, even if they aren't always right on black or white, but that it, you're not, you're, you just described a system that doesn't accept that. I mean, that's what you said at the beginning was this is very cutthroat, very, you know, no one's vulnerable, no one gets to be weak. So I, that, I mean, I just, it seems darn near impossible for somebody who has these kinds of issues to have the kind of long-term healing that they might want. I, I know that it happens, but the folks that I see struggle are folks who don't just have a drug and alcohol problem related to stress and lack of self-care and you know, maybe a death or an issue. They have these issues because they have long-term personality problems, they have profound early life trauma. And so you know, a lot of my clients are assholes, to be honest. And you know, they can stop acting out sexually. They can stop lying to their spouse. They can stop using, but they're still an asshole. And it takes them, you know, I often have a wife who will say to me, look, you know, he did this and he did that. And when is he going to start treating me the way I should be treated? I'm like, look, you know, sobriety, we can get there in six months, four months, two months, whatever. But having this person treat people better, be a kinder human being, be more empathic, be less narcissistic, that could take years. And so, the challenge is when someone's been identified as having a problem, it seems to me that whether it's a wife or a system, we want them to become the best person that they could ever be. Not just sober, kind, loving, nurturing, not yelling, not upset. not And that's an awful lot to ask for somebody who's just stopped using for four years. It is, absolutely. And you know, I think- you know, particularly with medicine, but this is true of, of some other industries as well, such as airline pilots um, and a few other groups is, you know, unfortunately, people start throwing around the S word, safety. And we call these professions safety sensitive professions because you have a direct public responsibility to others and your decision making or your actions, you know, can quite literally affect other people's lives and health. So, you know, there's this sense that we just can't tolerate a slip up or any backtracking. And look, if it was your child, would you want her or him seeing the doctor who might be loaded or might have gotten loaded last night? Of course you wouldn't. And then then we get the questions, you and I, well, maybe this person shouldn't be in this profession. Uh, maybe they can't handle it. Maybe they weren't. And, and I'm trying to look at someone who's been working to get to this place for 16 years of their life and telling them maybe we think they're not right for the job. And, you know, sometimes people aren't. Um, I had a physician recently who needed to move to an educational part of the work rather than being in active medicine. And he could stay in medicine and teach, but he he needed to be in a less stressful environment. That worked for him. So there are ways, I would imagine, that you can find for these folks that they can find a, a place in their profession that provides them the stability and the the reflection that they need to do their best. Is that part of coaching? Getting them to perhaps, maybe they change a, a location, they change a, a specialty, they move from one area of the work to the other? 
Absolutely. And, you know, I, I do this work both with, you know, physicians who are, you know, in recovery, as it were, but also I, I get some physicians who just call me out of the blue, you know, to want to do this type of coaching work around career, because, you know, people go into these professions for a lot of reasons, a, a lot of which are related to childhood, to expectation, underlying uh, personality and behavioral predispositions, you know, medicine both seeks out and rewards perfectionists. It rewards people with work compulsion. Um, it rewards people who really enjoy that codependency of needing to be needed as a, as a physician. I call that healthy dependency. <laughs> healthy. Okay. Sure. Um, but it, it can be taken to, a, to an extreme and it, it can make it very hard for these people to return to their work environment and continue. And so part of what I do in the beginning when I work with people is I, I really do delve into that with them and talk a lot about, you know, who and what's important to them now. And is this environment, is this profession really the best way forward given everything that's happened? And sometimes it's about helping them change employers. Uh, sometimes it's about helping them, like you just mentioned, transition to some of those non-clinical opportunities, which are actually quite robust and many physicians don't know about them, uh, but education, administration, you know, research. And sometimes it's it really is about just getting them out of healthcare <laughs> because it's it's not in accord with what they really value at this point. Mm. Let me ask you, um, Dr. Bailey, how can people reach you if, you know, you've given us such great information and I know that the people are going to have questions. I know that you, uh, it, when you are dealing with people with sex and sex and drug issues, will be talking, but um, how can they find you? How can they make use of you? What is the range of ways that they can connect with you? Absolutely. So the, the easiest way to connect uh, is through my website. It's my name, ryanbaileymd.com. Um, and that's Bailey spelled B-A-Y-L-E-Y. They can also call me. My phone number is 919-951-7709. And that's really the, the best way to begin that conversation. And you know what I do when someone either contacts me directly or is referred to me is I, I generally like to spend an hour talking with them and really sort of teasing out you know where they're at and what their hopes are for the future and seeing if coaching is really even the best fit. You know, like you said, it's it's very costly, not not just in terms of money, but you know, time and energy. And so when you are in particularly the early stages of of recovery, for example, you know, you want to make sure that you're investing in resources that are really going to work for you. And I think coaching is a wonderful resource, uh, but it's not for everybody. And so, you know, I like to sit down with people for an hour by phone and and really or by teleconference and talk about these things and really get a sense of the fit. And, you know, if, if it is a good fit, we talk about moving forward. And if not, um, there are other resources I often refer them to. Dr. Ryan Bailey, such a gift to have you. Um, folks, when you are looking for information, if you're working with or supporting a professional who's dealing with recovery issues, um, this is where I would suggest you reach out. And I know that you and I will be talking when we have these complex cases that involve more than one issue, because, you know, it isn't always just drugs. Sometimes it's drugs and sex, drugs and gambling, uh, drugs and spending. There are all kinds of multiple behavioral issues that run into that we run into. And I know that it takes a complex plan to help with the healing. Thank you so much for your time. And I know we'll be talking again. Great. Well, thank you for having me. I very much enjoyed it. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. 
www.thepetsmedicinecenter.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On seekingintegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at rob at seekingintegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care. 